You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. We're looking at Acts 16. And tonight, today we're looking at verses 35 through 40. You'll find this on page 925 of the Pew Bible. Acts chapter 16, and we'll read together verses 35 through 40. Hear the word of God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Well, Paul and Silas have been imprisoned, you know, because of exercising a demon-possessed girl. Her handlers had been making a rather handsome living through her occultic utterances. But when Paul expelled from her the evil spirit, they lost their livelihood. So the magistrates threw them into prison where they were singing at midnight. And a great earthquake shook the foundations of the prison and wrenched the chains from the walls. And even though they could have escaped, the prisoners remained in their places. Paul shared the gospel with the frightened jailer, and he was supernaturally converted. It is a miracle of grace, by the way. And by the Spirit's power, the man was born from above, and he and his household were baptized, and he entertained the two men now as friends. But for some reason, and Luke doesn't tell us why, the magistrates changed their minds and wanted to discharge the men. They wished to get rid of these Christians as quietly and as quickly as possible. So they sent the officers to release them. It might have been the same ones who flogged them. We don't know. And they informed the jailer, who was now a convert to Christ, and waited for the prisoners. And the jailer, you can imagine, must have been overjoyed. How elated must have been his emotions. This new convert could now tell his brethren that they could go free. And imagine the satisfaction of letting them know of their release. After all, it probably was awkward for him to keep them in prison, being a brother in Christ. 
So he said, the magistrates have sent to let you go, therefore come out and go in peace. And as far as the jailer was concerned, this couldn't have turned out better. Go in peace, he said, and perhaps you're welcome in my home. But Paul wasn't so eager. He was not going to leave since a grave injustice had been committed. And it was for that reason he believed that there was some unfinished business. Without first giving them a fair trial, the officers had publicly flogged them, as you know. And after that, the two men had been thrown into prison without any kind of defense whatsoever. And it may have been lawful to treat non-citizens that way, but it was a crime to treat Roman citizens like that. And without so much as a hearing, they had been whipped and imprisoned, and these men were Roman citizens, and they were supposed to have rights. The officials had been influenced probably by the clamor of the slave owners and the uproar of the crowd. And to abuse the rights and the privileges of Romans was a serious offense. The officials could be fired or worse, and the city could have lost some of its civic privileges. And Paul was fully aware of his advantage, and he was not adverse to using it. Isn't that interesting? What a change in circumstances. It was one of those ironic reversals. A day before, he was at their mercy, and now Paul, as it were, was in the driver's seat. And he wasn't about to go in peace without tying up a few loose ends. They have beaten us publicly. Uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and thrown us into the prison. And they want to come secretly and do this? No way. Let them come and take us out. He wasn't going to let them cover up this grave injustice. He insisted that the magistrates themselves come to the prison and release them. They have to apologize face to face and personally escort them from the jail. And they would come. And they would give an apology. And they would privately escort them out. And there is no question that the officials were fearful of the consequences that they might face, so they could do little more than comply with the missionaries' demands. And how ironic is that? Because sometimes even in this world we find there is retribution. Solomon says in Proverbs 26, a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. We see it here. But it's at this point that I want to ask the question, what was he doing? Why would Paul, the Apostle Paul, make such an issue of a public apology and personal escort? I mean, I'm not blaming him. In fact, I'm amazed at that he remained so composed throughout this. But my question has to do with the reason behind demanding these concessions. Couldn't he just as well have overlooked the offense in love, patience? Surely someone might be quick to quote for me the words of our Lord. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. That being the case, shouldn't Paul have just turned the other cheek? Why did he seek to humble the magistrates? 
Was it pride? Was it a bruised ego? Was Paul becoming just an old curmudgeon and just being somewhat difficult in his old age? It wouldn't, be, it wouldn't surprise me to find some commentators who hold that view, to be honest with you. But I don't claim that position, and I don't think that you should either. In this case, we have no evidence to support the claim that he's just being petty. I think there are at least three reasons why Paul demanded these concessions. First, Paul was sensitive to the claims of public justice. After all, these were officials. It's one thing for a private individual to do something wrong and unjust, but it's another thing entirely for a public official to commit an injustice. And Paul calls them the servants of God in Romans 13, ministers of justice. And as such, they are obligated to be impartial in upholding public justice. Psalm 97, we read it. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. So it is a grave sin for a magistrate to commit an injustice, to call evil good and good evil. Paul understood this. He understood the importance of maintaining justice. In fact, God calls to account the ungodly magistrates who lack integrity in Psalm 82. He says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Well, how often does this take place in this world? Corrupt judges, corrupt politicians. You see, God sits as sovereign over all the kings and presidents of this world, and he inspects all that they say and do, and the Bible assures us that they will have to give an account. Here, in this particular instance, an injustice had occurred, and Paul believed that it should be acknowledged. After all, he was not seeking punitive damages. He was simply seeking the common good. Did you know that it is a sin against the ninth commandment to hold our peace when iniquity calls for either a reproof from ourselves or complaint to others? That's a sin. Some misguided believers think it's unchristian to uphold public justice. That we're somehow supposed to turn the other cheek and give away our cloaks no matter what happens. But what Jesus was referring to was individual conduct. We do this as private individuals. You do something against me, I bear with it and overlook it in love. But public justice is another matter. The judge is obligated to uphold justice, and when crimes are committed, we don't turn the cheek, we prosecute. Societies will rapidly crumble whenever public justice is neglected. So Paul believed that this would set the record straight in the public eye. That's reason number one. Probably the least important, but that's a good reason. Number two, it may be that Paul thought this would lead the officials to ask questions. There's nothing like humiliation, public humiliation, to get the attention of sinners. 
Maybe Paul thought that this would do them good, forcing them to see their sins. After all, he was willing to be all things to all men in order to save some, and that doesn't simply mean accommodating himself to their preferences. It also implies helping others to see the truth about God and themselves. These Roman officials were violating the requirements of the ninth commandment, and if they were ignorant of their sin, Paul was willing to inform them. As Christians, I think we ought to understand the uses and implications of the moral law. This is an aside. But as Christians, it's important for us to know this is what we call biblical ethics. The Ten Commandments touch every aspect of life, heart, word, and behavior, every aspect of life. And I think they express God's holy nature and will, and they summarize his ethical demands. And our standards do a great job of expounding the Ten Commandments. I encourage you to consider them. For believers, they teach us how to express our gratitude for so great a salvation. So the second reason was that he thought this would lead the officials to ask questions. But then there's reason number three, which I think is the most important. He was ready and willing in all situations to defend the gospel. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This was his primary motivation. He wanted to maintain the good reputation of Christ and the church because some may have rejected the gospel if they viewed him as associated with criminals. Stuart Briscoe, you may have heard the name before. Stuart Briscoe tells about having to deal with a fellow employee who had embezzled a large sum of money from the bank for which they both worked. The man stole the money because he had two wives and families to support, secretly. And when he was finally caught and fired, he stunned everyone by saying this, I'm sorry for what I've done, and I need to know whether I should fulfill my preaching commitments on Sunday in our local church. Briscoe says he spent a great deal of time in the following weeks mending the damage done by that man's blatant inconsistency. And to Briscoe's chagrin, he found that his fellow workers not only despised the man, but were quick to dismiss the church he belonged to as a bunch of hypocrites, the gospel he professed to believe as a lot of hogwash, and the God he claimed to serve as non-existent. Paul's public beating and shameful imprisonment brought reproach upon the name of Christ. And there will be times in the eyes of the world when his name is reproached, his cross, his humble people, the weakness of his converts, saving the worst of sinners. But on this occasion, the reproach was caused by a grave injustice, and the missionaries were accused of disturbing the peace and stirring up insurrection. Strangers might judge the gospel on the basis of their wrongful imprisonment. And would this not have a tendency to harden their hearts against Christ? like the man in Briscoe's story? 
with that notorious report ringing in their ears, they'd be prejudiced against the Savior? Paul and Silas had done nothing wrong. They had broken no laws. They had shown no disrespect. So he was trying to preserve the honor of Christ and defend the reputation of the gospel. And the Roman magistrates came in haste. They came and apologized and took them out and asked them to leave the city. But Paul was in no hurry, nor did he have to be. He had the advantage. So rather than leave right away, he and Silas gathered with the saints at Lydia's house. And what a joy it must have been for them to thank the Lord together. I think one of the things, and there are several things to take away from this, but the first thing is this, that I think we should recognize the importance of public justice and our duty as Christians. I know that's not the most edifying thing, but it's true. We should recognize the importance of public justice in our duty as Christians. We read that righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. They're as natural to God as breathing is to us. In fact, the psalmist tells us that he loves righteousness and justice. He is perfectly, unchangeably, inflexibly just. And the judge of all the earth does what is right, according to Abraham. He never deviates from his own standard of perfect justice. And he is as faithful to his covenant threats as he is to his covenant promises. It's perfect equity. Every man will be recompensed according to his deeds. And as creatures made in his image, we're to uphold the principles of justice. But you and I live in a sin-cursed world where injustice pervades our society. Isn't that true? There's unfairness, there's prejudice, there's inequality, there's bias, there's abuse. Judges are bribed, witnesses lie, criminals are get off, and innocents pay a price. And often you and I are discouraged by the frequency and the magnitude of all of this. But Paul shows us by his example that according to our place and calling, we're called to do what we can. As providence permits, we are to promote and preserve public justice, and it begins with you and I striving to live by high ethical standards. You know something? Christians should be the greatest moralists in the world. Not that moralism is right, but we should be moralists because we're Christians. Living by a high ethical standard. Expressing our love for Christ in the way that we treat his commandments. We're saved by grace and with thankful hearts we strive to be moral. That's observation number one. But let's look at observation number two. I think it helps us learn how to understand with the world's injustice from the Bible's point of view. How do you cope with injustice? Not just on the news, but when it intrudes into your life. Injustice. How do you cope with that? There are two very important doctrines that serve the Christian well. And I'm convinced that these doctrines sustain Paul and Silas in the prison. The first is God's providence, which means that all things unfold as he ordained. And that includes things that are evil as well as things that are good. 
providence is likened to a very large tapestry, the front of which faces heaven. And on earth, we see the bottom of the tapestry, which appears nothing but a mass of confusion. Strings going every which way and knots all over the place. And we can't see any order in it. But heaven sees the top, which displays this intricate and exquisite pattern that God is weaving together. And there can be seen there the infinite wisdom and the celestial genius of the designer. I agree with Charles Bridges, who says this. There are depths to providence far beyond our vision. In his own time and way, the Lord will bring perfect order out of seeming confusion and astonish us with the manifestation of his glory. So, according to Peter, we should entrust our souls to a faithful creator content with his promise that we know. For those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You experience an injustice. It doesn't happen outside of the providence of God. The question is, do I believe it? The question is, can I live my life in light of that promise? If I am thrown unjustly into a dungeon... Am I going to be able to sing praises to God? I don't know. I don't think any of us know for sure, but this doctrine will certainly help me. But there's a second doctrine. It's not just God's providence. It's also God's judgment, which means that all things will one day be made right. It often happens that Believers are punished, or at least it seems like believers are punished and unbelievers are rewarded. Isn't this what Asaph struggled with in Psalm 73? He said, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They're prospering. I agree with Beza, who said nothing is more repugnant to reason than this apparently strange distribution. The wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. No wonder the preacher said at one point, all is vanity. But there will be a final judgment of all beings, both angelic and human. And every single transgression will be judged and no sin will go unpunished. And believers in Jesus will then be openly acknowledged and acquitted of all sin. What a great day that will be. Isn't that the wonder of salvation, the glory of the gospel? It'll be a day of great rejoicing because no eye has ever seen or ear has ever heard of such joy. And when that day of judgment arises, God will be sure to condemn the wicked. And I believe that this doctrine more than any other sustained the Jewish people throughout all of their sufferings and persecutions because when they were treated unjustly, they could anticipate a day when all things would be made right. These two doctrines, providence and judgment, help us cope with injustice. In fact, this is the way Scripture understands the greatest injustice of all time. 
As is so often the case, when you and I consider the cross, it helps us to make sense of a confusing world. The greatest man, holy, innocent, unstained, was unjustly crucified. His trial was a sham. His conviction was immoral. His cross was a cosmic crime. And yet the Bible teaches us that this injustice was part of God's plan and providence. Peter preached, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So his death was decreed before time began and it was executed in the course of history. It doesn't remove the culpability of those who nailed him there, but it does prove that Christ's death occurred in the providence of God. And the Bible teaches that this injustice on the final day will be made right. By that I mean King Jesus will be vindicated and the injustice will be made known. He was unjustly judged and condemned by wicked men. And at the last day, we're taught that he will come again in great power and in the full display of his glory. And that's when he'll sit on his throne to judge the world in righteousness. Until then, it may seem to many that his death was justified and his life was just a waste. But at his return, Jesus will be vindicated and his name highly exalted and all of his enemies will bend the knee and receive the sentence of condemnation. So these two truths, providence and final judgment, put the crucifixion in perspective. Let me ask you, what injustice have you suffered in your life that you're having a hard time putting into perspective? Somebody's wronged you. Somebody has committed a grave crime against you, perhaps. It's in God's providence. Final judgment will make all things right. And so we're taught to trust in the great governor and judge whose glorious majesty will be displayed. The great white throne will be established. The almighty God will assume his regal seat. The earth and sky will flee away and the dead, great and small, will be assembled before him. The celestial books will be opened and all the dead will be judged by what's written in those books. The book of the moral law, the book of conscience, the book of providence and God's remembrance. And these will be opened before the throne and everything will be laid bare. And in those books are recorded all the thoughts and the words and the deeds of every person who has ever lived. The most insignificant things as well as the most important, all things. And everything from the first moment of consciousness to the last breath of life will be included. Think of it. All hidden thoughts, secret things which before had been known only to yourself. Nothing will be missing. Whether good or bad, everything weighed in the balance As Jesus tells it, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. And regardless of how long it takes 
Every sin, even the least, will be judged. And that is a sobering thought. And sadly, the majority of mankind dismiss this as a fairy tale, a fictional story. And for that reason, there will be many who will be shocked and terrified when that great day arrives. But there is also, we're told, a book of life in which is engraved the names of every believer. And if our names are written in that book, how joyful will that day be? It exempts us from the wrath to come. It exempts us from the lake of fire and what's called the second death. It gives the right and the title to eternal life and an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Peter says, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. In other words, if you see evidence of grace in your life, you can be assured and you can anticipate a great day of joy. In closing, let me just say this. Each one of us is writing our own history, or if you will, our biography. Every day, another page upon which we inscribe a lasting legacy is written. The billions of lives lived will be so many books to read in eternity. Productive lives, suffering lives, noble lives, sacrificial lives, but the most important of all will be Christian lives, the lives of Christ's disciples, people who realized that they're sinners in need of a Savior and trusted in Christ. And what a pleasure it will be to read the life stories of God's children. And so what if it takes us 100,000 years to read them? When we've done that, we've just begun. It'll be glorious. And when we're done, we're told that we'll enjoy an everlasting reward. May God enable us to look forward to that day with great hope and satisfaction. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Even in a world that is pervaded by injustice, we can trust in your fatherly wisdom and sovereign providence and look forward to the final day when Christ comes to judge the world in righteousness, where everything will be made right. Until then, we pray for the grace to live by high ethical moral standards so that we, in our small way, can contribute to the common good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.